The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I mean, these are all signs that we can see pretty clearly at this point that she has no plan to step down anytime soon. And so this really cements his ruler for life status. So there's a lot of terms being thrown around modern emperor, Mao 2.0. I mean, this is really what it looks like. It doesn't bode well, really, for what this means for the West, where China's headed. And so the standing committee, it's just going to be a bunch of yes men. And this does make it easier in a way for Xi to continue to push through the policy priorities that he has. And as Julian said, I don't see that changing either. But the one interesting thing I think that this, the position this puts him in is that there's no room for failure. If something goes wrong, if the walls start to crumble, he has no one to blame but himself and his supporters. So actually this might be a much more complicated position for him to be in at this point. I'm Scott R. Anderson, and this is the Lawfare Podcast for October 26th, 2022. This past weekend, the Chinese Communist Party held its 20th National Congress, an event held every five years at which it appoints its senior leadership, who in turn holds the reins of China's government. This year, the event focused on one man, Xi Jinping, the current president of China, who secured an unprecedented third consecutive five-year term as the party's senior most official, and was able to staff the party apparatus with hand-chosen loyalists, even at the expense of his predecessors and other factions in the party. To discuss these events, I sat down with Sophia Yan, China correspondent for The Telegraph, and Julian Ku, professor of law at Hofstra University. We discussed what went down at the National Congress, where it says China is headed in the next five years, and what it might mean for its relationship with the United States. It's the Lawfare Podcast for October 26th, catching up on the Chinese Communist Party's 20th National Congress. So, Julian and Sophia, we saw this past week a pretty notable event take place in China, a core element of Chinese political system, party system, uh, that really sets their trajectory for a lot of what happens there for the next several years, and that is it's, it's Congress. Julian, talk to us a little bit about what this event is and where it fits into China's institutional arrangement? What role does it play in its policy process and political process? Yeah, I think I was trying to think of the right analogy for uh, uh, it's sort of like if you've been watching the news about the conservative party in Britain, they keep changing their prime minister, but the party chooses the leader and they don't have an election, although they eventually will have one. This is sort of like that on steroids, right? You have uh, the party chooses everyone that has any authority within the Chinese political system. And so therefore, when the party has a meeting to choose their leadership, 
they're effectively choosing the leadership of the uh, government and of the state for the next five years. And, and, you know, so this is crucial for revealing who's actually running the country, um, even though technically they're just choosing people to be uh, members of the party in different party offices. So so that's so they have these uh, congresses once every five years, which is this um, uh, way for the party to get together. And uh, they have elections or selections, not really open elections, of members of the Central Committee who then elect the members of the Politburo, who then choose the members of the Standing Committee. At the top of that sort of uh, Standing Committee are seven people chosen uh, the Standing Committee of the Politburo, who are the most powerful people in China, effectively. They're kind of the equivalent of a cabinet that never has to face elections, <laughs> except through this process every five years. So it does reveal a lot about the political allocations within the party uh, that we normally don't see because it's all public. At least the final selections are public. Uh, on the flip side, it's not like a open political process. There aren't like debates or there's no uh, elections and none of this happens in the open. It's really just a ceremony to reveal the decisions that were already made within the party. And so that's why the Congress is important as a political sort of moment, but not one which is sort of the equivalent of a political convention where there are different groups uh, openly vying for, for uh, power. Um, having said all that, it is the reason why we, we pay so much attention to it and they pay so much attention to it is because it is the only real political event uh, in China um, and, and they have it scheduled and it's sort of institutionalized so we can see kind of a little bit of what's going on within within the party. So anybody who's been watching any coverage of this particular Congress, the 20th Party Congress, making it a pretty notable one anniversary-wise, do the math every five years, 20th Congress, centers around one particular figure, and that's Xi Jinping, the man who's been really running China for the last several years, last decade or so, but is making use of this Congress, or at least is understood or suspected to be making use of this Congress in a kind of legacy-making way, as well as a as a political tool. Sophia, tell us a little bit more about this man and what role this 20th Congress is playing in his administration of the country. So Xi Jinping has taken on now a historic third term. This hasn't happened in a very long time since the era of Mao, Chairman Mao Zedong. After all that time under Mao, after this disastrous one-man rule, the Communist Party actually moved to police itself to try to put in guardrails to prevent that from ever happening again. So there was a two-term limit established. It, it actually only impacts the position of president of the nation. But in practice, whoever is the head of the Communist Party, also the head of the military, and also president of the nation, usually it's the same man. So by putting in that two-term limit for the successors that came after Mao, there was a limit to how much time they could be in power. There was also a move toward collective leadership and collective decision-making, which is exactly what it sounds like that instead of leaving everything in the hands of one guy, that there would be a lot more a lot more authority spread about. Now, under Xi Jinping, that's totally changed over the last 10 years. And in this particular party Congress, he passed that 10-year limit. He's now going into another five years, in total of 15 years, that we're looking at possibly even 20, and maybe even until he dies. He still has a way to go. You know, he's only 69. So we're looking at an entire generation of China possibly growing up under Xi. And things have really changed. He's tightened the reins significantly. There's very little space for any sort of civil society, for freedom of expression. That wasn't 
really a thing before, but it's even less so now under Xi. And so this really puts China on this very different path. I mean, we are looking at really a return. It's like we've turned back time. We're looking at what life was like under Mao happening again in 2022. Can you tell us a little bit, Sophia, about the processes that allow Xi to take this step? You know, what has he done to consolidate power or or is a lot of it behind the scenes so much that we have trouble evaluating it as outsiders? There's definitely a lot that goes on behind the scenes. As Julian mentioned before, the public does not get a clear view of what's really happening. Elite Chinese politics happens within a black box. The things that we have seen happening that have indicated this particular direction of travel, uh, those have been things like the anti-corruption campaign that she launched. He launched this right when he came into power. And this is something that a lot of past leaders have also done. Corruption, getting rid of corruption. I mean, this is something that just about anyone can get on board with. But his anti-corruption campaign has not stopped. And it's been a very convenient cover also to oust political rivals. He's cracked down on civil society. There's no space at all for dissent. Things like Me Too, these big global movements that have come around the last couple of years, all of this is censored in China. And then the, the thing that really cemented his power came five years ago. He scrapped term limits. So at the last party Congress, there was a move to kill that off. And so this was one of the clearest signs that he wanted to stay in power for much longer than this two-term limit, this two terms of five years, 10 years in total. There, there is a, an informal retirement age within the party, which is the age of 68. So by scrapping term limits, there was a sense that maybe he wanted to stay in power for much longer because he would, by the end of 10 years, be 69, the age he is now. At this point, technically, he should be retiring if you're looking at how the party has functioned in previous years. For all those in the top ranks of the party, they've retired, those nearing the age of 68. But Xi Jinping has stayed on. He is the one calling the shots. So of course, he can do what he likes. But because five years ago at the last party Congress, he scrapped those term limits that just made it so much easier for him to take, to stay on in power and to keep hold of everything he's built over the last 10 years. So one of the most dramatic moments, I think the moment that's gotten the most attention, certainly from the Western press at this Congress was the moment where Xi's predecessor, Hu Jintao, was kind of escorted out of the proceedings, uh, I think on Sunday, or this would have been Sunday stateside, so towards the end of this kind of extended proceedings. Tell us a little bit about Hugh Julian and, and and the rule the role that he plays and his legacy plays in Xi's construction of his own kind of government. What do you make of this particular development and this relationship between the Xi and his predecessor? You know, it's worth noting that under the prior system, as Sophia mentioned, uh, the leaders of the party, uh, the equivalents of Xi Jinping, uh, retired, but they stayed around. So they're still alive. Like uh, Zhang Zemin, who was the leader uh, from in the 90s, he, he's still around. He's, he just retired. And there's something sort of reassuring about this sort of idea that they're, they're once in power and they gave up the power. Hu Jintao was the, was the successor to Zhang Zemin. Uh, he was in power through uh, 2002, 2012. And he also gave up power and retired, but he's still around. And so that, there was some sort of sense of the institutionalization of the party that uh, the leaders would be in charge, they'd retire, and then they would kind of remain as these respected elders. Now, sometimes they also remained as restraining, uh, sort of a restraint on the successor because they have their own factions. 
they have obviously still a lot of political influence because they were the leader for uh, for ten years or longer uh, in in the past. So symbolically, we don't really know exactly what happened with Bojintao. Maybe Sophia has some uh, better sort of insight into that within China. But the I think the the symbol symbolism of the prior leader being escorted out is quite powerful and and done so publicly because. Uh, I think historically they serve as these sort of revered elders who sort of sit as sort of a way to bolster the legitimacy and also the normalization of the new leader, that there's a continuity between the new leader and the old leader. The idea, uh, the battle days, as Sophia mentioned, the Malliers, when uh, the new leader would just get rid of all the old leaders, put them in jail or, or exile them, which is sort of something that happened not infrequently in the Malliers. Is something that they we uh, the Chinese I think felt had been behind them, but I think this little moment here, whether it was actually intended, whether he was really just sick and needed to leave, or whether he was being shown to leave in a way to show um, how powerful it is, is symbolic of this idea that we're not in the world anymore where the the prior leaders can act as some sort of uh, constraint on the new leader that he's sort of uh, in charge, and, and there's not much that's going to constrain him. Even the past leadership can't really constrain him now going forward. Sophia, how has this move been received in China? What does it impact does it have on the Chinese public, I guess, and the other aspects of the Chinese governmental apparatus? Is it that function that Julian suggests looks like a, a likely motivation here, the symbolic significance of suggesting no checks and a departure from the past? Or is it triggering other sorts of concerns uh, among people who are watching this most closely because they're affected most closely by it? So mentions of that incident actually were censored in China, this moment where Hu Jintao was forcibly ejected from the stage. Even his his name was censored from searches online. And so this isn't uncommon. Even Xi Jinping's name was censored in the few days leading up to the party congress. You know, it's very politically sensitive. We're talking about a politically charged moment that we haven't seen in decades. So it makes sense that the government is trying to keep a lid on what people know and what people understand and what they're able to say about things. Uh, But under Xi Jinping, because things have gotten so tight, there is definitely discontent. It's hard to tell how widespread it really is. To a certain extent, the propaganda reigns supreme. A lot of people feel this nationalist sentiment that he has built and been very good about encouraging in the last 10 years that he's been in power. But with zero COVID, we're talking three years in, you know, snap lockdowns, livelihoods ruined, You have to get a PCR test in Beijing at least every 48 to 72 hours to do anything. In some cases, if you work in the service profession, you have to get a COVID test every 24 hours. This is really disrupting regular life. And three years in, people are getting very much fed up. And so there's a lot of discontent that's that's growing. And this policy is in place because of Xi. So the sense that people aren't so happy the cracks are starting to show. Even in the few days before the party congress, there was this banner that was unfurled on an overpass over a main road in Beijing, this guy dubbed Beijing Bannerman. And we are talking about just a banner. But in China, this is so unheard of that somebody would be able to do something like that. I mean, he's been detained since. And even those people who were sharing the videos and photos of that particular demonstration, they've been detained too. But that banner called for Xi Jinping to step down. That banner called him a traitor, a dictator, and called for him to stop doing what he's doing, that the COVID lockdowns were no longer acceptable. And so I think this moment that we saw with Hu really indicates that there will be no more 
tolerance at all for any sort of dissent. You know, that era where there was maybe some space for civil society, for people to speak their minds, for some innovation, for some development in that sense, that's done. It's totally over. And who knows what will happen next with Xi, right? He's got probably another five to 10 years in power. And with the way the last 10 years have gone, it's really hard to see how things could relax. Hu Jintao represented a very different era, who came from a a background that was very different from Xi. Xi Jinping comes from a background of, uh, well, revolutionary comrades, right? His father was a general who fought alongside Mao. He comes from red blood. Hu Jintao didn't come from that kind of background. And so that generation has been completely sidelined. Any other political faction in the party that was there, they're no longer there anymore. And so Xi Jinping can absolutely reign supreme. And so we're looking at a very different China. Julian, as you mentioned already, the biggest kind of institutional outward looking event that happens at this Congress is the appointment of the Standing Committee and the Politburo. Um, It gives us a sense of who is in those positions and through them a sense of maybe to some extent the priorities or the shifts in terms of what this particular regime is trying to either signal or actually trying to pursue in terms of policy. Let's start with the Politburo. What do you think are some of the more interesting observations that that we're able to draw from the appointment of the Politburo in terms of priorities for the administration, things that the regime is thinking about, or, or even personalities that might be involved there? Yeah, the Politburo, so that's, there's 20, I guess there's now 24 members of the Politburo. And they, you know, it's a little bit hard to um, use this as a way to analyze policy because there, it's it's probably easier just to analyze them in terms of which uh, historically people say well the, this the Politburo represents these different factions within the party and that there are so many members who come out of this faction or that faction, um, but that sort of uh, analysis just is harder to do when so many of the members of the Politburo are now sort of chosen um, in a way that limits sort of any factional sort of um, disagreement. There is no longer balancing different factions; it's just sort of choosing people who typically are. Uh, loyal to, um, in this case, they're uh, loyal to Xi and are going to work with, with what he wants. So I think, uh, I think the, you know, the takeaway from the Politburo and the Standing Committee is that there's, there doesn't seem to be the same kind of balancing representation of different factions to the extent that we could even understand what those factions were in the past, that we might have had in the past. And that, so the Politburo is not a serious constraint on, on Xi. Now, in terms of policy, that means that the Politburo can, will support whatever policy <laughs> she wants to direct. And, and in that sense, I think, as Sophia mentioned, what we, we're going to see here is more of the same. There's, there's essentially, this is a, a it's like a re-election, right? It's like a re-election of a, of a president after 10 years and with another mandate to do what they've been doing the last 10 years for another five to 10 years. And so I think for me, the takeaway is nothing will change. We, we don't regret any of our past policies and we want to continue them in the future. And that's, I think, what the Politburo and the Standing Committee within the Politburo seems to represent, at least from my, my initial take. Also, just one little note, um, footnote, that the party used to try to have a little bit of representation. The party is amazing. It has very little gender diversity, we call it, in the U.S., within the Politburo or even in the Central Committee, which is the group that uh, the Politburo is drawn from. And uh, that sort of uh, gender diversity has actually decreased. <laughs> there used to be at least one female member of the Politburo of the 25. Now there are no female members of the Politburo. And again, this is not something the Communist Party cares about, although they used to think 
it was something that they should care about um, to bring more women into leadership. And it was a sign of something that they just don't care anymore. <laughs> um, and they're not even going to bother to try to sort of um, not just increase, but actually maintain the level of very small um, gender diversity that they had within the Politburo. So the Politburo is a larger body, but that really, as you've already described, boils down to the standing committee, these seven individuals who are the most influential figures in China, other than she himself. Sophia, tell us a little bit about the standing committee. Who are the big figures here, the ones that we should be, are notable? And again, what do they tell us a little bit about what she might have planned or or that's trying to message to the public through these appointments? So all of the all of the men who've been appointed now to the standing committee are loyalists of Xi. They've worked with him in some cases for decades. And what it indicates is that that's what's important, close allegiance to Xi, not meritocracy, not how well you can do the job, not who else in the party you might be able to get on your side, but just whether or not you support Xi and you believe in him. You know, the, the best example of this is a, a man named Li Chang. He's, he's most recently the party chief of Shanghai. And being named to the standing committee for him is really a remarkable political comeback. He was in charge of Shanghai when the city was roiled with COVID. There were lockdowns in place a couple of times this year that were met with widespread public discontent. There were protests. People were so upset. There were some suicides even that, that occurred in Shanghai. And so it was really a, a, a mess. And even with that, even though he was the guy in charge at the time of this giant debacle, he somehow still made it to the top ranks of the Communist Party. And he's a Xi confidant. He's someone that she apparently trusts. So what that really tells us is that's what she values, not whether or not you can do the job well. It's whether or not she believes that you are on his side. That's the same for all the other men who have been named to the standing committee. And what's even more interesting is that none of them really have the right mix of credentials and experience and age to be considered a potential successor to take the reins in another five years at the next party congress. I mean, these are all signs that we can see pretty clearly at this point that she has no plan to step down anytime soon. And so this really cements his ruler for life status. There are a lot of terms being thrown around, modern emperor, Mao 2.0. I mean, this is really what it looks like. It doesn't bode well, really, for what this means for the West, where China's headed. And so this standing committee, it's just going to be a bunch of yes men. And this does make it easier in a way for Xi to continue to push through the policy priorities that he has. And as Julian said, I don't see that changing either. But the one interesting thing I think that this, the position this puts him in is that there's no room for failure. If something goes wrong, if the walls start to crumble, he has no one to blame but himself and his supporters. So actually, this might be a much more complicated position for him to be in at this point. Uh, I'll just add that um, there is one member of the standing committee, his name's uh, Wang, Wang Huming, who's kind of famous as kind of like an intellectual scholar, um, and his, it might be relevant for our analysis, is that he's kind of famous for sort of essentially, he wrote uh, some essays about live, uh, when he came to the States to sort of live here and study when he was younger, and essentially con- uh, his basic conclusion today is that America is an irreversible decline, along with the rest of the West. I mean, that's a very brief not totally fair summary of his analysis. But I think that's one big thread that has reflected the Xi policies toward the world is the sense that China is going to be rising over the long term and that the United States is 
going to be declining in the long term. And therefore, you know, the, the U.S. is is going to be troublesome, but it's not a rising power. It's a declining power. And that affects, I think, the way they think about policy toward the West and the United States. And Wang is a famous sort of proponent of that approach. And I think that's a sign that this approach will continue going forward as well. That's the perfect transition to my next question, Julian, because I, I want to dig into some of these policy priorities, a lot of which, as you've already described, are points of continuity with Xi's existing government, but that do seem to be suggested, or at least folks have been reading them as being suggested, is that there's a doubling down happening to some extent here. And you've already touched on one of the first ones, which is she's fairly robust and kind of aggressive, uh, lowercase a, <laughs> not, not in a sort of international law contest necessarily, but fairly aggressive leaning posture on diplomacy and global politics, particularly, you know, the wolf warrior diplomacy idea that I think gets a lot of commentary and tread in the West because it's such a vibrant kind of metaphor um, of being very aggressive and outspoken and defending Chinese interests and Chinese reputation. And, you know, at times being quite sharp elbowed about other countries' interests and reputations. Do we read anything into this, appo- this appointment and other related appointments that suggests any sort of departure or adjustment of that tack? How has that tack been received? And what do we expect from Xi's foreign policy over the next few years, given the people we see around him at this Congress? Yeah, so I think I'll just say that by, with respect to foreign policy, just like with most countries, it starts with domestic policy and domestic politics. And shoring up his domestic legitimacy or the party's domestic legitimacy is a key driver of Chinese foreign policy, just like it is, I think, in other countries as well, maybe more so. So I think that the the, the nationalist sort of ethos, this idea of nationalism as a way to bind the country together and responding to nationalist pressures within China, uh, which is uh, a long-standing sort of um, ideological force within China that's sometimes the same as, but often even separate from uh, the party's influence, is something that will continue to be fostered and harnessed, I think, um, because it's something that has been fostered and harnessed and encouraged in the last 10 years. So, for instance, there were uh, strong nationalist movements to, to against Japan over the dispute over the Senkaku Islands. This is way back in the beginning of Xi's uh, the end of whose term in the beginning of Xi's uh, era. There's the expansion or really solidification of China's claims, expansive claims in the South China Sea. Um, this is responding to and building on this nationalist ideology, I think, which is a very powerful force within China. And again, I think there's nothing in these appointments that suggests that there's any backing down from that, even though, as you point out, Scott, that uh, it has not always been received well, and in fact is a big contributor to the uh, decline in the uh, in positive feelings for China, in certainly in the United States and other Western countries, and, and the general decline in the image of China uh, throughout the world overall. So, but what you know, I think a lot of us on the outside are like this doesn't work. The Wolf Warrior diplomats, <laughs> they're just creating a terrible image for China. That China's image and polls around the world continues to get worse. And the Chinese government's like, that's okay, we'll just keep going, right? That's what this message of the Party Congress is to me. And there's, and so on, uh, there's no backing down. Uh, there's confidence that China can achieve its foreign policy goals, its nationalist uh, goals, and that the uh, other countries will complain, but they're declining, they're weaker. In the long run, China will prevail. And I think that kind of confidence in uh, China's place in the world is unique. I think it's new. It's um, a feature of the Xi regime. And again, I think, it will continue to be so uh, going forward now that he has really, if there was any sense that there would be opposition to him within the party, 
we can sort of dispense with that now. I think he's unconstrained. He's unleashed if he was ever unleashed before. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. One other question for you on that, Julian. Of course, one of the signature initiatives in terms of foreign policy of Xi Jinping has been the Belt and Road Initiative, kind of the the honey to the vinegar of wolf warrior diplomacy, this effort to build economic ties uh, and, and, and reliance to some extent in various corners of the world. Do we get a sense about a trajectory on that particular program or, or a different way it fits into the broader strategic picture? Or do we expect more continuity there as well? Yeah. So this is, if you look at the, the speeches and the working papers, they, they speak in such generalities that it's not there. It's very rare that they'll have any specific policy pronouncements, at least based on what I saw. But I think that uh, the the generalities suggest they they don't have any you know goal of at least backing down from something like Belt and Road, which is you know a signature initiative of the Xi government administration, and it's something that you know I think that they feel like has been uh, relatively successful. Certainly, there's no sort of openly backing down from it. Now, I, having said that, you know China is facing the real world of, of effects of economic dislocation and, and turbulence. And so they acknowledge that as well. And so I think the Belt and Road Initiative has been running into a lot of uh, a lot of economic difficulties, one within China, but more importantly, uh, difficulties that the countries that lent money to are facing around the world. And so there's no indication that they're going to back down, but it doesn't preclude them from adjusting the policy if they, if they choose to, to achieve the larger goal that Belt and Road is supposed to achieve. The main thing they're running into is that the economic problems in the last couple of years has really forced them to have to renegotiate some of the loans they've made um, under the Belt and Road Initiative with countries around the world. And you know, historically, they're not in love with uh, writing off anything. So this is something that China's going to be facing. I think it's something that economic reality will have to force them to do, even if it's not something they want to do. But I think the goal will be to preserve Belt and Road as, uh, even if it's not as ambitious as it once was, preserve it as as you said, the signature sort of policy of the uh, Xi regime, even though I, I doubt there's any sense that they'll expand it more than they've already done. I think it's a question of trying to preserve what is accomplished uh, so far. There's already signs, by the way, that they haven't they haven't really been pumping as much into it as they did early in the when they first announced the initiative. There aren't new many new projects going forward. It's not the same breakneck pace that it was in the beginning. So it's already kind of been slowing down. Uh, the last few years, um, but I think publicly, I think there's not going to be any backing down. I think, and, and I think that's something I fully expect them to, to claim that they're doing exactly what they've been doing, and what they've been doing is right all along. 
Sophia, another major policy that's come out of Xi Jinping's administration just the last year, year or two, that has been a real focus for the West, although a little bit less so in my sense within China, has been its relationship with Russia, particularly in the context of the Ukraine conflict, um, which presents a number of kind of challenging tensions for Chinese foreign policy uh, in terms of alliance with Russia, uh, which has been Kind of celebrated and remarked as being exceptionally strong at the same time, uh, what is hard to see as something other than an act of aggression um, by Russia against a neighboring country, something that China has kind of longstanding vocal principles against. Can you tell us a little bit about how, if at all, Russia and Ukraine have fit in either to this Congress or the context against which it's happening? Are there any anything we can glean from how she and the people around him are thinking about that conflict from this particular events we've seen over the last few days? There's nothing so far from the Congress that would give us more insight into how China's thinking about Russia and Ukraine. But over the last couple of months, it's been really clear. China says it's not taking any sides, but it's clearly refused to denounce Putin over this invasion in Ukraine. You know, China's position really is the same. It hasn't changed, which is that it doesn't actually have a clear position on a values and appearances front, it has to side with Russia. Xi Jinping has staked his claim over Russia. He's got this bromance with Putin. They give each other giant necklaces. They go out and have drinks and have dinner and they meet and hang out. They're, you know, they've got this relationship. But from China's perspective, it doesn't necessarily translate to all that support no matter what. China doesn't believe in alliances the way the West does. Actually, China thinks that those kinds of alliances have led to the decline of the West. And for China, to a certain extent, I think Beijing does know that not really taking a side is not doing it any favors on the world stage. But on the other side, Xi Jinping hasn't had a call with Zelensky. And that's probably because Zelensky would ask China, well, what can you do? Can you help us? And Xi Jinping wouldn't necessarily know what to say. In this sense, China is actually very inexperienced on the world stage in terms of foreign policy. They've had lots of meetings with embassies, different embassies in Beijing, also at the UN and the General Assembly recently, trying to figure out what's up and what's next. In in a way, it reminds me of what was happening during the early days of Trump. The Chinese were coming to DC, taking meetings with everybody, trying to figure out what the Trump administration was really after, because they were trying to figure out in Beijing how to position themselves. They wanted to know what everybody else's red lines were before they could figure out where their red lines were. And so there is a a sense in China, I think, to figure out how to position itself, but in a way it doesn't have the know-how to do that. So this is is really a problem because Xi Jinping, again, has staked this relationship with Russia as something that he considers an achievement, an accomplishment. And on a values front, Xi Jinping does see this tipping point, this division between East and West. He thinks that this is the time for political systems like China's, like Russia's, to rise against the decline of the West. Whether that that happens, of course, remains to be seen. And of course, the other big policy question, foreign policy question, I should say, that hangs over any discussion with China from the U.S. perspective is the question of Taiwan. Sophia, did you get a sense of how Taiwan may have fit into this broader set of conversations again, uh, either as background or as a feature or uh, something we can actually gather affirmative information about from the Congress? Xi Jinping opened the Congress with a big speech. Uh, It was just under two hours long, and in it, he does mention Taiwan. He has for many years talked about this idea of national rejuvenation 
And as a part of that, that means conquering Taiwan, to reunify with Taiwan, as the Chinese would say. And with the economy now being so challenged, I mean, we're looking at single-digit growth, maybe even 1%. That's what some estimates put um, 2022 growth at. That's very low. Before Xi took power, China was enjoying double-digit growth. And yes, the economy has grown in size in the time that he's been in power, but it's no longer growing as fast as it was before. So that means this informal social contract the government had, that the party always had with its people, that you will almost for sure be guaranteed better prosperity for your next generation in exchange for fewer personal freedoms, that's starting to change. And the party is starting to pivot from that guarantee, that economic guarantee toward this patriotic sentiment. And a big part of that is bringing Taiwan back into the fold. And so it's really a political issue. There's a lot of talk about whether or not China would invade Taiwan because of what we saw with Ukraine in the past. For the most part, China probably will only do that when it feels it's necessary, when it feels that there's a benefit in doing so. It won't act before it's ready. But there's a big question as to what factors need to come into play for China to feel that it is ready to do such a thing, to do such a big thing. But because Xi Jinping has made this also one of the centerpieces of his administration, of his time in power, there's no telling when he'll decide to pull the trigger. This is something that is very easy to rally the country around. Uh, So you can see why it would be something that he might want to pursue sooner rather than later. But one point I always want to make when talking about the Taiwan issue is that this is a country of one-child families, most of whom are sons. These are the people who will be called upon to fight if war were to break out, would the country still have popular support if that were the case, if everybody had to send their sons out to fight? That's also something we don't know the answer to. And one more point is that the military itself, could the Chinese military actually do this? There's a lot of corruption in China, even today, even after Xi's anti-corruption sweep. So if Xi Jinping and his generals are to issue an order, would Chinese troops actually follow through? Would they charge that hill? Because they know that their superiors probably got there because of corruption. Would they trust their superiors with their lives? I mean, these are big questions that nobody has the answer to, and even maybe she doesn't have the answer to. So Julian, I want to shift from these bigger foreign policy questions to a couple of domestic policy questions in terms of some points or some inferences some, some observers seem to have drawn from the composition of the Politburo or the Standing Committee. And one thing that a lot of people have noted is that there are a whole lot of scientists uh, and people with science backgrounds or other sorts of engagement with China's strong state-driven research and development agenda in a number of different areas, but particularly in kind of aerospace technology, space development. We know China's announced very ambitious goals of reaching Mars, reaching the moon, uh, is taking steps in that direction in what is you know rapidly becoming a bit of a race with the own kind of US-led Artemis project um, and related missions. Can you tell us a little bit about how that R&D, that focus on technological development, fits in to this Xi Jinping's vision of his own administration and China's future, um, and how they're proposing to to balance and trade that off a little bit with, given the difficult economic conditions that have already led other big dollar agenda items like Belt and Road to, to suffer a bit in terms of budget and investment? So yeah, I think you're right that uh, China historically has been a and really more just as under Xi, but also even before that, have been, you see really technological innovation as the key to their future um, economic development and the strength as a country. So 
they want to move away from being just you know, low-cost manufacturing, and they've succeeded in doing that to some greater degree, and move up the technological food chain, and so to speak, in the way that, say, South Korea and Taiwan did, from moving from sort of low-tech manufacturing to now both are kind of high-tech uh, powerhouses. And I think China saw for itself it wants to be kind of on the cutting-edge technology, and they put enormous amount of resources into doing that, into basic science, into uh, research and development, and, you know, they have... Um, generated tons of patents, for instance, um, in, from the scientific community in China. They've recruited scientists, um, Chinese, uh, ethnic Chinese scientists that might have left to go to the States or other countries and recruited them to come back, <laughs> uh, sometimes with very um, controversial techniques or arrangements. And so this has been a big priority. And I think there, and I think, I think most people would agree this is correct for them to see this as an important part of their future. The question is, how to do it in a way that they can maintain their relationship with the West, which is still has a huge advantage in developing these sort of technologies of the future, like if artificial intelligence would be one example, quantum computing is another. They've poured enormous resources and had great success in those. Um, uh, space exploration has been a huge success story for China's uh, state uh, state enterprises or its state-led space programs have done have made a really a strong achievements that I think people in the Western space programs would acknowledge. They've created a space station, they have a moon mission, and they've been able to succeed. Um, and they've put a lot of resources into that as well. So I think they're along. They're they're pretty far along this path of developing China as a leading, uh, innovative, cutting edge scientific and technology powerhouse for the future. Now, having said that, the question is: Can they do that on their own, or do they have to maintain? good relations with the West in order to continue that development. And I think this is something that has been a tension with, with the nationalism and patriotism that Sophia mentioned. That's a big ideology within China. And Xi's own vision of China as the rising power. And so there have been, you know, the Chinese government has had ideas about, well, we want to make as much of this made in China as possible. They, had, they originally called it the made in China sort of policy, which they then renamed because it got a lot of criticism in the West. But the idea generally is to create domestic industries that are standalone that can be can exist uh, without sort of support or a, a technology derived from foreign countries like the United States. Um, they're not there yet in every area. And um, and one example is that, you know, that the Biden administration has identified is very advanced semiconductors, which has been a point. And the, and the Biden administration announced an order just recently that would limit um, sales of, of very advanced semiconductors to Chinese companies across the board. And that is a big blow, is a big vulnerability for the Chinese development of their uh, certain kinds of technologies within China. So so they this is a big priority. They're going to continue to pour enormous resources into it. The only sort of X factor, and they've been successful at it as well, the only X factor is whether they can do so without sort of uh, being embedded in, in the Western uh, companies with Western engineers and scientists being deeply embedded in that in that program, or whether they can do it on their own, I think that's that's going to be a real challenge for Xi to do that in the future. He has mentioned he wants to remain open to foreign investment, and he wants to have good relations, economic relations with the West. He said that, and I think this is a sign that he recognizes there's still some work for China to go on this front in terms of becoming independent and able to sort of develop its science technology on its own. So it, that's that's a big priority. It's a huge priority for uh, the Xi administration. I think that will continue to be so. I think um, this is where also we're going to see the, one, some of the most conflicts with the United States in particular. I just want to add on to what Julian was talking about. One of the reasons that she has made this such a priority is to be self-reliant. China 
often squeezes other nations with economic coercion when they're engaged in diplomatic spats, cutting off trade, cutting off access to factories, snarling supply chains, calling for national boycotts of foreign brands. This has been enough in the past to cripple huge companies. And so she knows that other nations could possibly do that to China too. I mean, China still in so many ways relies technologically on imports from other nations. So trying to build that advanced technology, that advanced manufacturing capability means that China then is much less dependent on the rest of the world. And therefore, it won't matter if it starts to get into pretty big fights as it already has with other countries. So there's one last policy uh, I want to discuss that you've already mentioned, Sophia, but I want to come back to it a little bit because it is such a point of discontent domestically in China of a sort we really haven't seen in other areas, at least not publicly, uh, to, to at a significant scale. And that is the zero COVID policy that China has been living under for the last several years. And that, as you've already described, it appears that Xi Jinping is doubling down on, or at least not willing to walk away from the people who helped implement it, however problematically. How has that been received? And how do you anticipate that might shape the trajectory of this next phase of Xi's governance? Is it really a sign that he's doubling down on these domestic suppression? Do those go hand in hand precisely because it is such a controversial measure that you need that kind of insulation from public response to be able to implement it? Are there good public health reasons that he's pursuing it, and there's there's if people understand that you know how how does this fit in? What does it tell us about how the regime thinks about its relationship to the Chinese people? So there is definitely a public health element to it. So far, China has not administered anything but Chinese vaccines. Foreign mRNA vaccines are much more effective than what's been produced domestically, but it's like with many things in China. There's an extra layer. There's a coercive element to the public good element. So the public good element here right now is the contact tracing to make sure not too many people fall ill, to make sure that long COVID perhaps, as propaganda says, doesn't become more of a thing in this population. But the flip side of that is that with the contact tracing, they know everything you're doing. To a certain extent, the government already kind of knew everything that everybody was doing, but now there's no way around it. If you're traveling in China, once you land, you have to report where you're going. There are contact tracing apps for every province, for every locality that you could possibly go to. I mean, I feel this very acutely as a journalist. I'm always trying to get at least one step ahead of my minders. But now when I go anywhere, I have to declare where I'm going before I go, declare where I'm going once I land, get COVID tests, et cetera, et cetera. And if you don't have valid test results, you get flagged and you get stopped and you get detained. I mean, there's just so many obstacles uh, in China at this point. And it just gives another layer, another way for the government to track what everybody's doing. And we've already started to see how this could be really problematic. Over the summer, there were protests that were trying to be organized by groups of people. They were upset over a bank issue. And all of a sudden, their health codes, their contact tracing apps turned red. So if you have a red health code in China, you can't do anything. You can't leave your house. You can't take a taxi. You can't go to the grocery store. Can't get to the airport. Definitely can't go out to a protest. If you have a green health code, you can do everything. But it's very clear that the government can turn this on or off. It's just like, you know, they must be hitting a button somewhere in the system. I mean, I've had this happen to me. This green health code turned to a red health code, to a yellow health code. So by this measure, they can really control what the population is doing. And so by changing the health codes with these protests over the summer, that meant that these demonstrators couldn't organize in the way that they had hoped. 
so I, I think we're going to see a lot more of this happening. They can claim that it's for public health reasons, and that provides some layer of protection. Who can really argue against that? But at the same time, they're really suppressing the general public. This is something that has changed really in the last year or so. Before this kind of pressure from the state, this was something only dissidents would feel. People who really were, frankly, pissing off the state. But at this point, just about everybody feels this very intrusive nature of the government. And with these health codes, there's no telling how they'll use that and wield that to make sure that the entire population submits. So we're almost out of time today, but I want to part with a question for for both of you, which is how the rest of the world should be reacting to the events we've seen take place over the last few days, many of which, again, are points of continuity. So the answer may be just to kind of stay the course. But we've already seen the Justice Department of the United States uh, at least roll out a set of indictments against a number of Chinese nationals. The timing and the backdrop against which strikes me as not entirely coincidental, um, although I don't know whether it's intended to be you know, a response or, or, or less provocative by waiting to the end of the Congress, potentially, that relates to a number of individuals indicted for you know, interfering with investigations, um, some some intimidation of of kind of political dissenters and other items like that. Should do we see how do we anticipate the rest of the world responding to this trajectory that it seems like she and China are on coming out of this Congress? How do you how would you recommend that they respond? And is it a change or a departure from what we've seen, or should it change or depart in some way from the approach countries have been taking already? You know, this is the zillion dollar question. I think the answer, unfortunately, is that since she is acting, you know, he's 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 on board for at least another five years, and let's just assume another ten years. You know, I think everyone else has to react with the assumption that he's going to be locked in power, unchallenged, without any constraints, following basically the same policies he's been doing with the same approach. And so, the reaction to that is going to be a lot of the same on our front as well. I think. I think. Yeah, I think that you know, wistful thinking of the collapse of the Communist Party or the collapse of Xi is, is you know, can be ignored now. We can just say we just have to live with him for the next 10, 20 years and just sort of start planning for it. I think that means I think for the United States, what a lot of what it's already been doing, but maybe more urgently. And I think a lot of what the Biden administration has been successful in doing, building on the Trump administration's policy, is to really build out uh, outreach to other countries. So it's no longer about the U.S trying to bargain with China to some sort of modus vivendi, which I think they can try to do, but they will unlikely to be successful. What they want to do is try to work with other countries to build alliances or at least understandings with other countries to balance China so that the policy toward India is built a lot on this idea of working with uh, NATO, the G7. And then importantly, I think in the future, really uh, aggressively working, bolstering its outreach to the so-called global South, which China has very strong uh, relations with historically, but also through the development initiative. And the U.S. has been kind of ignoring <laughs> in many ways, at least as part of its foreign policy, uh, because I think it's going to be a contest. It's a contest for influence, economic power, and sometimes um, military sort of advantage. It's going to be um, important for the U.S. to really be working and paying it, keeping its eye on the ball to make sure that it is maintaining um, an alliance is too strong a word, but some sort of approached by a agreement among other countries that China's aggressive behavior is unacceptable and that will deter it. So that could be a lot of different things. I think they've already done a lot of good job of building out of support for Taiwan, I think, to try to deter um, action over Taiwan. Um, I think 
trying to build out suspicion in Germany about becoming too economically dependent on China is uh, been a successful something that uh, the U.S. should encourage to try to encourage the Germans to avoid what they ran into with Russia uh, running that same playbook with China. So a lot of those things, I think, is not going to be about the U.S. and China, but the U.S. with other countries and being smart about it and trying to um, build build itself up, build the United States up as a model for other countries to emulate or at least admire, or at least not hate, maybe is the lower bar to reach. But to work with other countries to sort of say, look, you want to work with us. China is not going to be what you, the solution to all your problems, economically or otherwise. I think we can make some inroads in the global South, Africa and South America. That would be a huge uh, achievement to try to balance what is going to be kind of a long slog with the, you know, kind of a, a gigantic, really powerful version of North Korea <laughs> that we'll be facing for the next 10 years. I hope that nations can be much more aware of what Chinese sharp power means. There's a lot of intimidation of dissidents abroad. There's a, lo- a huge move from the Chinese state to police outside of its borders, to make sure that nobody's saying anything that would be considered as negative or that nobody's doing anything that would be potentially damaging, at least from the eyes of Beijing, uh, to the to the country. And so there's... There's a lot of extraterritoriality going on. Uh, there's all this discussion about Chinese influence. It's it's really hard to delineate. It's because it's not black and white. They're riling up Chinese overseas with this nationalist sentiment. So if you're just a regular person, you're Chinese, you live in the UK, you live in the US, you live in Canada. If you feel this patriotic sentiment and you're trying to push the Chinese line, is that nefarious or is it not? This is what China can do that no other nation can. They have this power to build that kind of sentiment in its people, no matter where they are. How far that goes, it's, it's hard to tell, but that's very different from what we know. It's very different than, say, the Russians killing off people in other countries. It's a very different way of proceeding. And in that sense, it's it's very subtle. So I think nations thinking about how to deal and engage with China have to be very much aware that there is this other layer of how China is thinking about and engaging with the world. It's something that is so hard to put your finger on. And I I think that just makes it, I think that really makes China quite terrifying, to be honest. It's just, uh, we're really in this new era. New era is something that Xi Jinping says all the time, but if you look at it from the outside of China, it's, I think it's pretty scary. This kind of next, uh, this next 10 years that we're going into. Well, we will have to leave the conversation there. Julian Ku, Sophia Yan, thank you for joining us here today on the Lawfare Podcast. Thanks. Thanks for having me. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Please be sure to rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. And check out Lawfare's other podcasts, including Rational Security, a casual, lighthearted chat about national security news that I co-host each week with my colleagues Quinta Jurassic and Alan Rosenstein. Also, be sure to visit lawfareblog.com for our extensive written coverage of national security law and policy issues, and consider becoming a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare to gain access to an ad-free version of this and other Lawfare podcasts, among other perks. This podcast was edited by Jen Patcha Howell, and our audio engineer was Kara Schillen of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thank you for listening.
When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.